two, one. be joined by a former Wexford uh, senior hurler, Jeremy Link. Um, thanks many for coming on, Jeremy. Um, your transfer to uh, Trilly Pernells has got a bit of attention during the lockdown. It did, yeah. But sure, there was nothing else happening, so that's that was a good uh, that was a good indicator to me. Um, I had chatted to the lads in Parnells. I chatted to more the last couple of years, actually, because of the closest closest hurling club to us, uh, and I was back up and down to Wexford to play a bit of junior B with my younger brother and era like five hours to play a game of junior hurling as much as I love hurling is not uh, not ideal and I was thinking as well with the lockdown and stuff that you might get to play you might get a window to play kind of locally so I was on to the lads and it started off kind of as yeah it's a bit of social hurling everything is grand and all of a sudden I was added to the intermediate hurling whatsapp group and I was like oh here lads that's that those days are those days are gone because their Parnells are competing like you know they're not they're not far off senior at all they were best I think maybe after a replay in the intermediate final last year so they're yeah that's I, that that intensity doesn't in any shape or form interest me anymore but yet I still I still love to be able to play the game and I think probably junior B is the last bastion in the GA of like other than the the social hurling games that have taken root in plenty of clubs. Uh, Junior B is kind of the last one where you can just kind of go and play uh, for the moment. Anyway, I think that's even changing when I look at some of the young fellas playing. But it's uh, it, yeah, it was an exciting possibility just to, just to be able to play games again. You know. And you mentioned the commute from um, Wexford um, to Kerry, like to or from Kerry to Wexford to play games, like, and we we see a lot of intercounty players now are travelling down from Dublin. But when you start to realise that even just going to junior B training like do you feel even when you go training that the commute when you are training can have a massive impact really on a player there's two separate things there the first thing is that uh, I don't commute to go training uh, I like that's the by junior B like I mean you turn up for the championship games and hopefully I went to one practice match and that was kind of my championship training done and the lads couldn't, of course, put me straight on, and I was a sub in the first junior B game, uh, and I had to accept that because I wasn't around, you know. Um, but then after that, after half an hour, I was in at centre back and loving it, really enjoyed it. The commute situation is very different for lads who are serious about the game because the question arises to what, 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 how are you best spending your time? Um, I think the mentality is maybe taken over a little bit in the GA where it's like. Do you know, I remember one day uh, I broke my thumb against Kilkenny in Nolan Park uh, in an innocuous challenge from, I think it was Henry Shefflin came in with the hurl and caught me in the thumb and broke it and I had to go off. And at the time, Redmond Barry was playing hurling and football with Wexford. Uh, and it was only when I got to the subs bench that I realised that there was a little bit of um, a bit of snarkiness towards the fact that Red wasn't training with the Wexford hurlers all the time. Uh, he was going with the footballers and they were, you know, they're sitting on the sideline, but they're going every night. Now, my attitude at the time was, well, you're going training every night and he's only coming some of the time and he's still better than you. So I don't know what you're doing at training, like if you can't, if you're, if you're not better than somebody who never goes. So I think 
managers and selectors have uh, and performance coaches and all of those characters tend to want to keep harmony uh, the harmony and the balance in the camp is essential uh, so if that's there <coughs> it, kind of <coughs> it makes more sense to have a hundred percent attendance all the time but then if you kind of focus that into the, tra the training session that's the 90 minutes or the three hours or whatever it is that they have with you in that time it's like well we have you for three hours and we'll have you for three hours the next day and what you do in between is you know eating food and going to the gym and all that stuff is important but that time in the car was was for a long time not being addressed so fellas were coming down from I mean from Wexford as is the case maybe for for most of the fellas who are away in college like they'd always have between half an hour and three hours we'd say of a commute and before training and after training I don't know what the sports scientists say but I mean it makes perfect sense to, to, to my body anyway that if you're sitting down in a car driving and the kind of strain and stress that can be sometimes there coming out of Dublin traffic or whatever isn't is not the ideal preparation for for going training to push your body to its absolute limits and then after training I mean that's a whole other that's a whole other uh, issue I mean that's definitely not the thing that your body needs to be doing you know needs to kind of go, go from that high performance and be really moving gently down to um to a point where you're not getting in shattered at 12 o'clock in the middle of the night to get up uh, for work the following morning just just in a on a pure performance level like i don't think like i don't count mm -hmm. the sacrifice aspect of it that we sometimes champion in the ga it's like all oh, these poor fellas have to go to work the next morning stuff so, like we all we all choose it and we all love doing it so that's fine but physically, from a physical standpoint, from a preparation standpoint, it's far from ideal. If you're talking about a two-hour trek, which is what we were talking about with Wexford, that's four hours, in my opinion, lost in the commute. Um, so obviously it, it became more of a thing in the late 90s, thousands, um, that, that there would be Dublin-based training or there would be Cork-based training or whatever it was. <clears throat> and the more of that, the better, because that, that, that time spent in the car is really... I mean, now we've got podcasts and things to entertain you, and it would be good crack if you've got three or four lads in the car with you, maybe. But I think from a physical standpoint, it's just it's time wasted. And sometimes it smacks a little bit of a lack of trust, as though if the lads aren't there in the the, 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 the bubble for two hours, then maybe that little bit of uh, that snarkiness kind of comes up. As if your man is away up in Dublin and I choose to be in Wexford, so why shouldn't I be on the team or whatever it is? Um, maybe that dynamic has changed an awful lot. I suppose everybody that plays the game now almost is a student or has has their student days kind of close in their memory. So there's a little bit more forgiveness. But certainly it was uh, a, a bone of contention that they, I think, erred on the side of everybody has to be there and that kind of militant uniform approach. And I don't think it served players very well for a long time. And you're involved. Uh, with public speaking group and um, team bonding exercises. How have you found with your work during lockdown, you obviously haven't been able to get as much with the interaction with people in public due to the guidelines? Mm. Yeah, the, <clears throat> the work that uh, I'm most interested now in, in GA is based around connection. Uh, there was, there's been the revolutions in sport and the revolutions in earning football that I know of in the last 30 years anyway because 
people just to want to witness it and really know obviously something big happened in the 70s with Dublin and Kerry and where they took training but I, I don't know the ins and outs of what other teams were doing um in the mid 90s the, the Wexford Limerick uh some of the Clare driven particularly by Clare and probably a little bit by Wexford Whitling Griffin as well they realized that if they went into the gym and worked really hard over the winter they were setting themselves off uh for the start of the year in a much more beneficial way and they could get a run and they could get momentum and they could build up which is what happened with Wexford in 96 you know they got to the league semi-final which they hadn't been uh which they hadn't been to in three or four years um and hadn't been to much before that so I think they they, they realised what needed to be done. Uh, Clare had done it. Wexford did it. Limerick did it. Offaly were an anomaly. I don't think they necessarily did it. They just had a, a very gifted bunch of players. And at the time, I remember the kind of the story was in Kenny and uh, Tipperary and Cork was like, well, she can't bench press balls over the bar or whatever, you know, whatever excuse there was for bringing the game forward in that way. It was like, we'll keep the traditional aspect more alive, which was fine, but those teams started winning then and the big three fell back. And so they realized, okay, well, we have to go down this road too. And once they went down that road, they began to dominate again. <clears throat> so that was that uh, revolution. Sports psychology has been a big thing over the last, probably in the, in the proceeding, I mean, Cork took it to a very possession-based game. Um, short passing, not giving away playing the percentages, playing the percentage in the shooting, um, really, you know, measuring their their approach, and that obviously worked very well for them, and that changed the way the game was played significantly as well. So there have been these uh, revolutions that come at different times. I think we're on the precipice at the moment in sport in general. Uh, you see, it, they're already doing it in rugby. The Dublin footballers have been doing it for a couple of years. I'm not so interested. I don't think anymore in sports psychology. It's trying to understand the workings of the mind because sure people have been trying to do it for aeons and haven't been able to do it and so you can do all of the back slapping exercises that you want uh, and you can you can analyze uh, how fellas are thinking all you want but at the end of the day if you don't sincerely care about the fellas that you're playing with if you don't sincerely care about your place uh, if you don't have that root connection to those two things then it's always there's going to be performance. I mean, you're still going to be, you're still going to have capabilities because lads work so hard at their game all the time. But I think that's the next, that's the next level. Uh, that requires a bit of an unveiling of yourself, uh, unveiling of parts of your life outside of the game, maybe a little bit more um, vulnerability, a little bit more openness than the the old dynamic of you get into the dressing room, you get changed, you get up, bit of crack, bit of laugh, and bit of jeering out onto the field and you work hard and you come back and it's the same thing. Uh, connectivity and connection to people and to place requires a little bit more openness, and a little bit more slowness than uh, would be traditionally allowed for. And it's player centered uh, and where done well, player led, uh, honoring the fact that the fellas who are sitting in front of you have all of the answers that are required. There's nobody that comes in with the answers. It's all in the room already. It's just how to work the group dynamics get those answers out uh, and to get that unveiling of kind of deeper parts of themselves that they may share in common and it may be weighing heavily on them as inter-county players um, but once they realize that maybe everybody else is in a similar boat those things don't weigh so heavy there's a little bit more lightness and when you've got more lightness you've got just you know infinite more potential for performance um, connection to place is is also one that works well I think I suppose my point in, in introducing these is that those things uh, can be done to a certain extent on Zoom or can be done to a certain extent 
uh, and like on the computer, but it's limited. Uh, it's to my mind anyway. It's limited. Group dynamics work best when everybody's in a room together, and you can see when you can inhale the social cues, the things that are happening. You can pick up fellas' reactions. You can see things, and your body can feel things that just aren't accessible that that I have been able to do. Maybe other people can, but I certainly can't. Uh, I feel those things are. You can be much more responsive to what's happening in the room when you're in a group with a group of fellas uh, or a group of women who are actively engaged and trying to improve themselves. So I maybe had, there is maybe an opportunity to do a little bit more of that, but I'm not interested in it. Uh, this is this is, this is is fine as a podcast because it suits the podcast medium, but I'm not interested in sitting in front of the computer and talking about these things so much, um, particularly with groups of fellas when I know that the gold is when you're sitting down in a room with them. Uh, and you really get to explore what's going on for them as a team and as a unit and as representatives of a particular area. So, <clears throat> I, yeah, I've just I've just allowed that to pass. Um, similar to with with the retreats that we run, Wild Irish Retreat that we run down here in West Kerry, um, there was infinite potential to go online and to do workshops online and all of that stuff. But we're just not really so interested in it. I think what's what's much more interesting is to be out in it. Uh, either in rooms and GA clubs, if that's all you have, but uh, also just to be out in places, you know, out on in beaches, forests, fields that aren't in the that, that, that kind of GA mindset uh, as much. I think you get to much deeper places with fellas. It builds connection. And when you build that connection, I think performance follows because you're coming from something that's an awful lot stronger than what you can build in a gym or what you can build necessarily sometimes even on the training field. Uh, so, yeah, that's, I'm just, I'm just kind of, content uh to spend the time with my with my family and my kids and and build a few ideas uh and we we kind of do our own thing a little bit back here in west Kerry as well it's not so i don't feel it has the same strictness as it does maybe in cities and towns uh, and other parts of the country so i've just uh yeah engrossed myself in that more so and use the time to build my connection to this place than i have kind of seeking out work that I don't feel is actually valuable just because maybe the cash will be good you know yeah it's a great point you make and even about running them retreats being carried on the beaches and stuff it must mm. be perfect for you as well to be like running them in places like that because it's it's very different I suppose to other team building exercises that maybe other people do yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting, Paul, because the great the great paradox in sport, uh, for me as a player anyway, the great paradox in sport is that to win, to ensure victory, you have to let go of the need and the desire and the thoughts towards victory. And it's totally and utterly counterintuitive to the lived moment of playing because you are playing for victory in a sense. Um, but the more you're consumed with that, the less freedom there is to perform, to bring about the conditions, to create conditions within which victory arrives automatically because, because that freedom is there, you know. Um, so down here, um, down here is, it doesn't carry that same weight. And that's why when I work with teams, I, I, I prefer to work with them outside of the GA club, because when you come into a GA club, you step into a GA club, even if it's not your own, even if you're just going training somewhere, or you're in a performance center of some sort, you, you 
embody the athlete. You assume the identity of an athlete, of you and your team and the role that you have and you as a representative of your, of your parish or your club or whatever it is, the friends that you have, the fellas you don't like, the interactions with the coaches, all of that stuff. And it's informed just by past experience an awful lot of the time. And so when you carry that in the door, you carry in all of these kind of memories and that forms how you, how you behave and how you interact and how you perform. Um, down here is the, the biggest difference down here is that there are very, very few wild places left in the country because we have, you know, they're either, they're either, they've either um, suffered the, the, the excesses of agriculture or you've got, you know, urban sprawl and things like that. So everything is quite controlled and uh, organized and measured. Down here doesn't have that quite so much because of tourism. There is more money down here, and so there is. Uh, it is definitely focused a little bit more towards a certain type of uh, living. But there are wild places down here, and I feel when you bring fellas out into wild places, fellas in particular, I, that's that's probably my, that's my interest. Um, when you bring them out into wild places, it gives them the freedom to let a bit of wildness come out in themselves, and that wildness is really good. In society, it's not so good because you have to be maybe a little bit more measured and controlled. But in a game, um, it doesn't. It mightn't suit the tactician. It mightn't suit the statsman. But I, yeah, I've no, I would have not, not much interest in suiting them anyway. I think what we're missing a little bit in the game, it sometimes is a little bit of that unfettered wildness that that brings out a kind of a swashbuckling type of performance out of yourself that you don't really know is there, and you can get some way to by you know, training, commitment, eating the right food, all of those things. But there's what I always feel is like that kind of Tommy Welch effect, like that just unleashing of something deep down in himself that makes him completely and utterly enthralling to watch. I think that there are way more players like that in the country, but it's been trained out of them a little bit. Much the same as the land, what we're talking about with agriculture and urban sprawl. Uh, when you're down here, that's not down here so much. And I think that that opens up possibilities to let go of the focus on winning and work much more with the person, much more with the people of a place as opposed to the athletes, because the athlete is a limited part of the whole. Now, one of the things that happens as GA players is we, we assume the identity of the whole. We assume that the athlete is the whole. This is me, this is my entirety and our, our, our the windows of, of observation and experience narrows the more we identify with ourselves like that. So if we can let go of that a little bit, uh, our view of the world, our view of ourselves, our view of our teammates, or a view of why we're playing the game expands and you bring in a little bit more of that energy of the six and seven year old who started playing the game because he just loved playing the game. And that is only a good thing for hurling football. Yeah, it's a good point you make there about players like Tommy Walsh that we might, mightn't have seen them. Do you think why we haven't seen maybe a player like Tommy over the last few years is because Hurland has just become possession-based and systems? Mm. Yeah, like, I mean, it takes... <clears throat> I, I just... Their old Hegarty or somebody flashes to mind when I, when I think about this, and I, I wouldn't like to be disingenuous to somebody like their old Hegarty, you know, a brilliantly a brilliant hurler in every in every sense of the word you know so what i'm looking for in players uh it's not the whole story it's not like this isn't i'm not saying that the game needs to 
needs to turn wild in that way and everybody needs to be a Tommy Welch because that's not what the game is about. Every every sort of character and every sort of person is drawn to it for different reasons. But I want to put forward the possibility, I suppose, that this is a way um, and that is only going to be counterbalanced by the stats men and the systems men and the tacticians. So I only want to represent this as a possibility because a little bit of it could come in not it's not the whole story they're all still there's i wouldn't disrespect any player to that i don't i don't feel to disrespect any player uh in that way who's currently playing the game i mean there's just such they're just they're just they're, they're their skill levels the capabilities the commitment all of those things are so total and and so uh, far exceed anything that's gone before them in many respects that it would be disingenuous to say that you know they maybe we should all have more Tommy Welch's but a little bit more of that Tommy Welch effect released in every player would be a good thing where the statsman is still welcome in the door the training ground for sure because those things are important and it is good to measure and it is good to have tactics of course these are natural um, shifts in the game but I don't hear anybody I don't hear so many people I don't know anybody but maybe I'm not listening properly I don't hear anybody talking about this uh, I don't hear anybody referencing this really um, in a way that's viable. Um, and so I want to represent it in some way because it's just something that I feel about the game, you know. Um, so it's not it's not the whole story and those fellas are doing their thing, but there's room for a little bit more freedom, I think, definitely. I think the enjoyment levels, both as an observer and as a player, would increase tenfold if there was just a little bit more of that in the game, you know. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, you made a good point there about skill levels as well. But I suppose if we're to touch a bit on your um, Wexford career overall from 2004 to 2013, we won't need to spend long on it. <laughs> but um, how do you reflect on it? Uh, I'm just, I'm, yeah, it's, it's, it, I'm just grateful now. Uh, I'm just grateful for it, really. I don't know. What else there is about that? It's it's like, do you know? Probably the great gift. Um, Laker Gael is a, is a is a it's a great show on on TG Carr and it's an, an honour to be selected on it and all of those things. Um, but as as the player focused, I actually you kind of see, it's not the reason that it's created in the mind of the person who has created the program from the producers to Ariel and had at Nemeton. It's but in the living of it, my experience is is that program is created for this one particular moment in each of the players' experience of watching it before it goes out on television. Uh, I think pretty much everybody, all of the players would have a showing, uh, a preview of it, of the full program in their GA club or some such place uh, a couple of nights before and the lads from Nemeton come up and they bring a CD up and they put it on and the friends, family and club mates and everybody gathers to watch it. And there was a moment at the end of that uh, when it finished um, in St. Martin's where we watched it, where is a f there's a f the feeling I don't know how to communicate the feeling in the answer to the question, but that moment was like a reflection back, like a zip through time. Like when they say when somebody's, uh, when somebody's, you know, about to die or almost about to die and their life flashes before them, like in this 
probably lasts from two to 20 seconds or whatever, but the reaction of your teammates, the reaction of your clubmates, the reaction of your friends, the, the, the fellow feeling that you feel, all of that just flashes, all of that time spent with your club, all of the games just flashes before you. And there's this immense, immense feeling of gratitude. I couldn't say I've ever really experienced anything like it, um, certainly not in GA terms. To have that reflected back to you, to have uh, people reflect that kind of warmth back to you for having played the game is, I just, the one thing that I felt was I wish every player got it. I wish everybody who ever played the game got it, got that moment where it was reflected back to them and people said, thank you. Like, thank you for what you did. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for showing this. Thank you for showing our place. Thank you for representing our place. Just thank you. Like, it's such a, it's such a, yeah, my body comes alive even thinking about the moment now, you know, it's such a lovely thing. Um, the other thing that I reflect on, and it's, it, it again, it just stems out of gratitude, not because I want it to, just because it does, is that anything that I do in my life now um, is fed by my experiences of hurling. Uh, it still opens doors. It still, it still brings me to places that I never would be. It still, it, it's just giving, like it's just giving all the time. As someone said to me uh, recently, say, you're still living off that and you fucking did it 10 years ago. But it's not that you're living off it, it's just that it's still alive. Like it's still, it, it just shapes so much of you. Um, and people are very responsive to that. Uh, and so it just continues to give and whatever avenues of life that you go off into, I'm definitely a little bit more interested now in undeveloped parts of myself that I kind of sacrificed or, or let go of. Um, I wouldn't say sacrifice because I wasn't conscious that it was there, but certainly trying to explore a little bit more creativity in myself outside of the game. And what I find is how that manifests is through my experiences in hurling and there's just a huge response to it. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, 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 I think I battled with it for a few years after playing because that's, there's quite a void, uh, when you retire. And so you can kind of become a little bit bitter and kind of become a little bit like, yeah, like I, I can even, I can remember sitting at a couple of extra games in the, in the tens, like, um, late tens or mid tens, we'll say, I don't know, 14, 15, 16, where the lads were starting to go well again. And it was part of me, like I knew it, I could feel it. They wanted them to get beaten because I didn't want, I didn't want them to have a success that I couldn't get or whatever it was in my career. I don't know. It was just like this little bitter part of me. Uh, and, and I didn't like that because I just have, I, because I've loved Wexford and loved following Wexford and I've playing for Wexford for all of my life and now there was this bitterness there so I had to deal with that uh, and thankfully thankfully that that has passed but I do see it sometimes in, in players and in past players they never quite they never quite get past it and they're kind of held hostage by it then for for a long period and it's not good you know it's not good because I think you don't appreciate the changes in the game and you don't appreciate the the movements in the game uh, quite as much because you're stuck in this past version of yourself, you know. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a force. It's only been a force for for, for good, really, uh, despite that struggle. Yeah, and the point you made there about like even that you didn't maybe want Wexford to do as well because mm. you wanted that success. Was that was that hard even going to matches trying to put on? nearly a brave face um 
the only hard part of it was dealing with it. The only hard part of it was dealing with why it was there. Uh, yeah, like bitterness is an awful feeling. Like it's an awful thing to have uh, a resentment or whatever it is. Like it's an, it's an awful feeling to have and everybody knows what it is. Now you might be conscious of it. You might follow it and think that that's who you are and you don't, you know, you resent something and that's it. But I think when you step back from your emotions or when you step back from your experience a little bit and observe and say, okay, um, that's there. Why is it there? And does it always have to be there? And if you can kind of process that a little bit more, um, the, the hard part is processing it. The hard part, it, it's certainly sitting in, a, sitting in a stadium, watching the team you love and having that feeling is a shit feeling without doubt. But once you process it and deal with it, which is the hard part, uh, then you move past it and, and it's, it's fine then. So you're living it internally. It wasn't really hard because when you play for a long time as well and you go to games, like when I go to Exeter Games, if I go to Exeter Park now for, if, you know, if there's a championship game, if there's a game played and uh, supporters actually get to go and I get to go to it, I see all the characters. I see there's loads of new fellas for sure who I don't know, but there's loads of the old characters who were there when I was playing and they just... They just look on you so fondly, like they look on you maybe with that gratitude of, you know, thanks for doing your bit or whatever. And that's just a nice feeling, like, you know, it's nice to be kind of recognised for your efforts, whether you play for it or look for it or whatever, that's a different energy. But if you if, if you just feel that, that's a that's a very nice thing. So it's it's all it's it's all kind of counterbalanced in, in that way, in the actual lived experience of it. 2000, your first year on the Wexford team, um, you, you broke onto the team in 2005. But like Aaron Kernan was on the podcast this week as well, and he was saying with his first year, like it took him a year to break onto the team. But he was saying he built resilience through that. Do you think you built resilience as well during a hurler as a hurler working to break onto the Wexford team? Um. I don't, I don't know about that. I don't know. Um, but certainly, I remember when we were coming up to play Cork in the Orange semi-final that time, uh, we played Waterford in Wexford Park. Uh, and I was marking Tony Brown. And I was delighted to be on the same field as Tony Brown. Don't mind me marking him. Like, I was thrilled. Uh, and I was, I think, uh, midfield. Maybe he was wing back and I was wing forward. I'm not sure, but I got seven points. I remember that much. And I was delighted with myself. And then we trained that week and I was marking Adrian Fenlon and I got on very well again. And we were using this running system of switching the half forward line, which was, wasn't really done at the time, just on the puck outs. Um, and I had the legs and I had bundles of enthusiasm, but I didn't have any experience. Um, Paul Codd was selected at wing forward, uh, even though he wasn't going quite as well, but he was on the freeze. Um, and he wasn't fit enough for the role maybe at the time. Um, and I felt a little bit of, yeah, I wasn't happy with that. Like, But at the same time, as soon as that thought arose in my head that like I should be on, it was like, hang on there now, like <laughs> pull back a little bit. Like this is your first year, you know, you're, you're only back. You're only, you're only starting off. It was, I wasn't long back for America, maybe the year before I came back, 2003, I did a little bit of training with the panel towards the end of the year. Uh, and just for training games and stuff. And so in 2004, I was still, I was always very certain, Paul, from a young age that I would play. So I wasn't really, I wasn't really ever too pushed about not playing at that stage. 
because I felt that it was it was it was it was inevitable. Um, just deep down somewhere inside myself, that was the that was the undercurrent, uh, and I trusted that. So it didn't really. F- I don't feel I had to build. Resi- I, didn't, I didn't build resilience because I wasn't battling something that wasn't kind of it wasn't going to come. Um, I felt and and when I look back now, I mean, I could have been completely wrong on that uh, at the time, but I wasn't. Uh, I, I wasn't doubting it at the time, and in the, yeah, in the aftermath, now I feel like I I, I was yeah I, I had it fairly right like. Yeah, and when you met <laughs> onto the team in 2005, mm. what's this like as an inter-county early when you finally made the breakthrough and nailed down your spot? Uh, what's it like? Sure, I've, what's it like? I what, 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 what else is like it? What else is like it? Like, I don't know. Like, there's great moments of elation in your life with, like, since I've had kids now, you know, you find other... There's other things like um, that bring great, great feelings, relation, but they're not, they're not like that. Like you know, and they're not worse, and they're not better, but they're not like it. It's a different thing. Um, I made my debut against Leash, uh, starting in the championship in 05 as Martin Carey. I remember. I never forget it. Like it was just an all-around nice experience. Like it was really, it was. The first half had a lot of tension in it because it was all the built-up tension of this boyhood dream that I'd had uh, all my life, and I was getting to realise it, and I was getting to play in pro park. And my father, and my mother would be very proud, and my family would be very proud, and my brothers would be looking on, um, and that was great. But then in the second half, a little bit of magic just started to happen. You know, just things started to flow, um, and some really really beautiful moments happened and when I look back on those now I just think like fuck wasn't it great like wasn't it great wasn't it just great that, that happened now, it seems like somebody else did it in a way like another I don't know what, what that's about but at the time um you're very focused you, you you know you go out with the focus of what of what the team needs and what you need to do but definitely inside there's a circus of emotions um there's all kinds of things going on inside you and when you fall when all of that aligns because there's so much excitement and there's so much energy and there's so much enthusiasm there's so much fear and dread and doubt as well uh that when that aligns and turns it crosses into that place of flow that uh that people are very much accustomed to talking about now um that's uh timeless experience and um and it's it's it was it was it was wonderful it was wonderful what's it like maybe it's not like anything and during your wexford wexford career coming up against an unbelievable um kilkenny team especially during the years from 2005 to 2009 like when you see that kilkenny team and how good they were like it, it must have been sickening in one way but like to be playing a Kilkenny team of that standard must have brought you on as hurlers as well. Uh, it didn't bring Wexford. It didn't bring Wexford on as hurlers for sure because um, maybe for a, a short time, I mean, 2004, we beat them. 2005, they beat us by four points. Um, 2007, we made a really big effort and they beat us in the league semi-final by 12. Leinster final by 14. All-Ireland semi-final by some other team. 
Uh, and we were really going at it at that stage. We were really preparing well, and we had an excellent trainer in Podrick Murphy. Uh, it 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 broke so many of our of of the players that we had. It broke their hearts to such an extent that you know you can carry and you're part of a team you're part of a club team or a county team whatever team you're part of and there's a certain amount of players who are on a similar page uh you can carry a few players who maybe aren't and there'll always be players who who just who just maybe aren't um that's not to say they weren't at it it's not to say they weren't about their business they certainly were and they trained hard but for that level of preparation the level of preparation required to, to be a team like that is is just it's total um, and we didn't have that after 2007 in particular because we had just, I think that broke us, maybe it broke our spirits a little bit. Um, so for, for me, it was frustrating. I, I don't feel my spirit was ever broken by them, to be honest, because I felt I was competing with them and I was happy going out against. I was delighted to mark Tommy Welch and I was delighted to mark Sheffield, delighted to get a belt at him, delighted to get a shoulder, delighted to be just out there in Crow Park uh, playing. I'm kind of playing representing Wexford, yeah, never really changed. Um, not feeling like you were going to win. We were always hopeful in Wexford, you know, we definitely had hope, but I could see as, as it went on, as it got into maybe nine and ten, I started to see, I started to realise a little bit more because I had kind of devoted my time to wondering, well, why, like, why is there fellas up the road? They're just up the road, like, that's all, they're in a different county, but they're just up the road, and yet they have this dynamic going on, and we're just down the road, and we have the complete opposite dynamic in some respects. And so I began to observe the steps along the way in, um, in the year. Uh, and I think in 2009, it was Pod, Poddy Butler came into us uh, for a session down in Pearsonstown, very start of the year, and there was only about 12 of us, um, and that told its own story. There was still stuff happening, there was, it was fine, like, but there was still only 12 of us, and Poddy started to speak to us, like Poddy Butler does, uh, and somebody answered him, but they didn't look at him, and he was like, sorry, what did you say? And he kind of held his ground until he was looked in the eye, uh, and that was a massive moment for me because it unveiled what was what had been going on to me uh, before. So we were kind of dishonest in a way with ourselves and with the game as to what was required uh, to be men and to play and to prepare in the way that men would prepare and play to get the most out of themselves. We were kind of living the experience of inter-county hurling, but this was a different type of thing. This was a demand to be present, a demand to treat each other with respect, the respect that anybody deserves uh, in a in that kind of an environment, um, and so he just put a fire underneath us uh, at the wall, and it was brilliant. I loved it. Geez, I can remember the session so well. Uh, I loved every second of it. I thought, right, this is it. This is the start. And he said, Liam Dunn wasn't there actually that night um, for some reason, and oh, actually maybe he was. It was just it was a lot of players weren't. And Paddy Butler said, I won't be there the next night, but. The energy that we've cultivated tonight, it's your responsibility the next night to, 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 to cultivate that same energy and everybody else would follow. And I thought, brilliant, that's what we'll do. So we went up to St. Patrick's Park uh, where we used to train in Scarty. And I looked around after about five minutes when we were just doing the puck round at the start. Um, but the puck round at the start is, that's training too. Like it's not just a puck about, you know, you're still, you're, you're, you're working on things. 
I looked around at the, the body language of a lot of the fellas around me and I just thought, wow, it's gone already. Uh, you don't turn that on just when the manager blows the whistle. Like, and I felt that, that it, it wasn't taken up at any level. Uh, I was gutted by that. And I think it was, it was kind of a moment then I said, right, well, I'm giving, <clears throat> I have to be careful with that because I, didn't, I don't feel like, it's not like I gave any more than anybody else or any less than anybody else. Everybody gave what they could give, you know. But I do feel that uh, that type of preparation, that you know, that type of honesty and a type of integrity that Brian Cody was banging on about for years and nobody was really listening to him. They were all saying, what's your, what's your secret? And he was talking about, things like genuineness. Um, that's what he was talking about. He was talking about what Paddy Butler was talking about, but he was talking about it every night and they were doing it every night uh, and we weren't. And you can have uh, you can have your, your day in the sun, you know, everything can flow on a particular day for Wexford and we could beat Kenny at that time. I felt that was possible, but we weren't preparing to beat them. Uh, and so you, what's the point? If, I mean, if you're not going to prepare, if you're not willing to prepare to beat the best team, um, I don't know. I kind of felt that Malin were kind of settling for some other version of what this, of what we're doing here, and I wasn't willing to really go along with that, you know. And with your Laker Gale as well, you mentioned the year um, two thousand and seven, and you played Tipperary that year. But mm. I suppose it's well documented now about your um, hamstring injury that you did pick up. Um, when you picked that up. Did you think it was going to be as serious as it was in the long run? No, Jesus, no, of course not. No, it was just a light hamstring injury and all I was focused on was the next game. And so when they said, go off down to the Friday Derby Chamber, I thought, that sounds good. And that's what I did. And yeah, no, I had no, no comprehension. I had no comprehension. I suppose that's why I, I, I wonder about athletic identity now. Um, I had no idea that I even had an athletic identity, even though it can completely not really ruled and ruined and it ruled my life like uh ruined kind of came out there uh, and in some things it did but that that trip to the cryotherapy chamber was the first point at which kind of my body or life or spirit or whatever you want to call it kind of reflected that athletic identity back to me and said that's this is not the whole story this is not all of who you are you cannot continue thinking that because it's detrimental to every other aspect of your life outside of hurting. And it's even becoming detrimental to me hurting as well because it just wasn't so enjoyable anymore. So I didn't know that it could change. I didn't know that there is from, you know, when any big event happens to any person, like you can, you can plan for it or you can think that you can plan for it, but it has such an impact on every cell in your body that it's only when it happens that you realize that, Oh, this is what, is actually happening or this is what's possible or this is what is outside of that little small narrow uh, window of, of, of perception that I had been using and so that broke that down so I'm eternally grateful for it although I'd still, uh, I'd still, I'm still curious about what would happen if it didn't happen um, but it certainly was a, it was certainly a big wake-up call. And the pain like after the cryotherapy when you went in there like, what was that pain like for you and what you experienced after that? Um, again, yeah, it's very hard to say what it's like, you know, what, what is it like? It's, it's uh, I suppose for anybody, anybody who 
I guess is listening like when when you have a, um, a moment where something happens in your life either it, it happens when you've got kids as well it kind of extends outwards but up to that point it's, it's it seems to be kind of a self-experienced thing uh that you're in a certain amount of pain or you're something happens and you're like shit this is the way it's going to be forever this is that thing that i had is now gone and this experience may be what i'm left with for the rest of my life um and that's a terrifying feeling so the fear at, at that level that's that at another level that identity level you're like okay i'm i need to keep this going i need to keep that social role that i have assigned to myself i need to keep that going uh, i need to stay involved i need to stay part of it um and so i just that's just what i tried to do i uh, just tried to kind of sleep my way around it and to save up as much energy as i could and to eat as best i could um and to deal with the the lack of energy that i was experiencing in any way that i could and i, and I was still working like it was still I, I could feel that my my um work rate was way down in terms of like defense and stuff but i was taking the freeze and i was still I was still getting, you know, I was still getting plenty of scores um, from playing stuff. I was still decent under a high ball, so I could that could kind of those things kind of masked the the overall performance. Uh, but Wexford were particularly bad at the time, to be honest, and so I don't think it took a huge amount to stand out in that time because we just weren't going well and the, the buzz wasn't good and the dynamic wasn't good. So. Um, yeah, it, it just, it, it, that it was unraveling. Things were just unraveling the dreams that I'd had as a young fella. And when I came onto the, the scene in 2003 first, and you're playing with, you know, Damien Fitzhenry and Dara Ryan and Adrian Fenn and Larry Murphy, Rory McCarthy, to me, like legends to me, totally like just a privilege to be on the field with them. 2004, five, six, those fellas were still around. Um, and I just was, is it such high hopes? I thought we were really going to go somewhere, you know. We had, we'd had a good under, we had a good minor under twenty one team. We had we had done we had done well at under twenty one. We were bit by Limerick in the Ireland final, and uh, Galway gave us a bit of a trim in the Ireland semi final. Um, but we were coming out of Leinster and we were doing well. Uh, so I thought that when that team, um, Rory Jacob, Mick Jacob, Keith Roster, Ron Quigley, itself, um, and then and then and you know David O'Connor was there. Uh, Doc was there a little bit earlier. He was broke into the team a little bit earlier. There was a lot of fellas at that time who were, I just felt, were coming into their prime at 26, 27, 28. And when they did, we were going to have a serious team. But that was unravelling and I wasn't feeling good. Uh, so it was, yeah, sure, look, it was torture in many respects. Um, yeah. And you mentioned the years there, around nine or ten, where you were saying Wexford weren't as good as they were when you came in. But you were captain around those years did you feel the extra pressure almost from being captain when the team wasn't as strong geez i wasn't considering having to write speeches anyway so it was that 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 was uh, alleviated um not really uh not really i mean i'd set myself up i suppose and other and coaches and managers and other players set me up as a leader of that of that group. I think before I got the captaincy, and I was 
always very interested in in being that, I suppose, and in in showing the way, uh, showing our way. When I look back now, like I don't feel like I did a good job of it, but at the time I was doing the best I could, and I and I and I did the best I could, uh, and tried to prepare in a way that said, right, look at this is the this, these are the limitations. Uh, this is how how we can prepare. Um, but as captain, no, I think in in two thousand and nine I got the captaincy first uh, because we'd won the championship in two thousand and eight. We Wexford had that rule at the time of the county winners picking the captain. They dropped that rule in 2009 and we didn't win the championship in 2009, but I was picked again as captain in 2010 and I felt that, that was a great privilege. Um, I don't recall a huge amount of pressure around it other than the same pressure that I'd always had to be a role model for a way of preparing to play and, and a role model on the field during games as well. Um, but I did feel I felt there was something wrong at the end of 2009 because we got to the league final and we were beaten by Offaly. And similar to what I was saying about 2004, uh, feeling that I would always make it. I felt I was always going to make it. I also felt somewhere in me that I would be the captain at some stage and I would lift a cup at Wexford. Now, of course, everybody maybe has that dream um, and you assume that it's the other in the final. So I was gutted in 2009. I remember at the end of the year, that part of me, I thought, geez, that's, that was wrong like you know I was wrong on that and I didn't, it didn't feel like I was it, it didn't it, it didn't feel wrong it felt like there was a, a guiding uh, force that was on on task um, and so when I was appointed captain in 2010 I, I thought that chance was gone but they dropped the rule and I was appointed again and when I was appointed again I thought okay that makes sense because we're going to win something this year um, I felt that uh, yeah it's a weird thing to kind of reflect back on because there's a kind of a I don't know, an arrogance or something like that, but I, I just felt that that was going to be a thing and it ended up being the um, Division 2 in the league um, where we, we met Clare uh, down in Thurlis and it was captain and I got that experience of going up and accepting a cup on behalf of Wexford and that was, yeah, uh, just a lifelong a lifelong dream that came through. Like. When you step away after that to go travelling, did you have to consider that a lot and did you have self-doubts about going or was it for you that you just wanted to go travelling? It was just very messy. It was all very messy. I was going out with a girl in America at the time too and so it wasn't all like I was heading off travelling you know, to find myself or anything like that. Like I, I knew I needed to get away from the game for a while, definitely. Um, and so I chose to go to America. I chose to see about life with a woman there and... Uh, my brother was there and my uncle was there and I just thought, right, I had been there, I'd spent time there in 2002, I think, with Owen Quigley uh, for six or seven months and we'd had a ball uh, and I always kind of felt I might go back there and so I did, I went back and that didn't work out very well and I ended up in New York and I was very lost, yeah, very, very lost, very, very lonely and and things weren't going nearly according to plan. I mean, I was having a ball in some respects, I was working in a pub and over there you know you can have a few beers and you can you know you'd be chatting up women it's like going out for a night really but you get paid for it and you're getting paid loads of money too so it was great um so I just saved uh, all of that and, and kind of went traveling then so it wasn't it wasn't like oh I need to go travel that that just that dream was there but it kind of unfolded a little bit differently um but it was a chaotic time I was having loads of doubts um the last thing I wanted to do was leave 
Wexford and leave my teammates and to not play hurling anymore. That was the last thing that I really wanted to do. But I knew my body was was, was breaking down slowly, <clears throat> and I knew I was miserable for it. So I had to address that. Um, yeah, yeah, that was the that was that was that was. But really, everywhere that I was, uh, I can remember like small breakthroughs. I went to Australia for a while, and I was in an ashram there, just just yoga, meditation, pretty much all day, eating really cleanly, and my body was starting to get stronger again. And I'd go out in the evening uh, in the Australian sun and go for a light jog down this laneway in the middle of the forest in 35, 35 degrees of heat. And I'd feel this little bit of, I remember feeling this vibrancy. I was taking, I think I was spending four or 500 euro a month on supplements. I was really trying to, really trying to heal uh, my body at the time. And uh, I went for a jog and it was just a jog. That's all I was doing. That's what I was persuading myself. But as soon as I felt that, like, shit, there's something, there's energy here again. It's back. There's an energy there. Even though it was maybe, I was, I, yeah, I wasn't sure at that stage about going back, but I was like, that's there. It's there. I can go back. It's there. Uh, every step along the way, no matter where, no matter where I was, and even up until I don't know it could have been like 16 or 17 like it could be even that late you know if I felt a little bit of a if I felt an increase in energy there's part of me would immediately think like fuck I could go back I could go back and play uh that never left uh well it has left I suppose now I don't feel like I could go back and play now um at that level but it certainly lasted well beyond anything uh well past anything that was sensible because in 16 17 I couldn't have gone back either like you mentioned the yoga and meditation there. Um, you're obviously doing it to ha- help your body heal and everything, but do you feel when you're doing the yoga and meditation over in Australia that it, it was nearly putting your mind into a better perspective? Yeah, that, there's, it's, it's the very same as the paradox of winning. Like <clears throat> if you're doing yoga and practicing meditation because you want to heal, you're not going to get too far like because it's it's a kind of um it's an egoic healing like it's like i can get back to this thing it's like it's a limit a very limited perspective um yoga means union like yoga the idea of yoga and the idea of meditation is that you just that all of that stops that there is no seeking there is no wishing there's no wanting there is no those things have have like there there are those things in life obviously for, for for loads of different things but in the moment of the practice that you can let go of those things and move into your body in a more um, complete way and that was always yeah that was always the challenge uh, at that stage because part of me was doing it because I just wanted to get back I just wanted to get back to how I used to feel I wanted to get back to those energy levels I wanted to get back to Wexford I wanted to get back to playing I wanted to get back to Crow Park I wanted to get back to Mark and Tommy Welch I wanted to get back to those things but it was all a seeking it was all uh, it was all nonsense in, in many respects because those practices demanded that you don't want to get back anywhere you want to go forward into something that's a lot more sustainable and that your essential energy levels are looked after i mean that's it's an idea i suppose in some respects it's an idea of the east but i think it's a total um i think it has i think it has value everywhere is 
you have like you've an, you, you've energy levels that are accessible um, for all of the different things that you do, um, and there are different types. Obviously, there's like food, there's your own um, response to things you care about and everything else, and that gives you energy to do things you do. But beneath all of that, there's what they refer to in the East as your chi, is this like essential life force, like the life force that you are, the, the current, the vibration that you are. And if you, when you burn a candle at both ends, for example, like that's you burning chi. It's like you have a certain amount of your coffee and your sugar and your uh, I want to play for Wexford energy. You've got a certain amount of that, but that's a limited force. And once you hit the limits of that, either you pull back and say, right, I've hit the limits of that. Or you say, right, I'm going to go into deeper into my reserves. And if you keep going into your reserves, if you keep going into your life force, you drain it away. And the other energy um, sources are replenishable, but your chi is not quite replenishable in that same way. It takes a huge amount of energy to replace chi. Uh, you really have to dedicate a long period of your life to doing it. So it's not probably realistic for most people so once you burn that g that's that's gone like that's as good as gone um and that's what i did in those three years in the last three years at wexford i was borrowing a life force that will that i had to really work hard to try and replenish a little bit of it but probably yeah i, I mean i don't know and i don't really care i don't spend much time considering it too much like um but, but may have knocked time off may have knocked time off my life like you know because you just you just burn so much of this beautiful beautiful stuff and it's not really it's not really yours to burn that way you know it's that's like the ego saying i'm going to take this from you your essential self i'm going to take it from my purpose but for the whole organism that's not the way forward in any shape or form you can do a little bit of it and it's good to dip into it every now and then but to to wage a war on it uh, and to to to, to use to burn it all up um just trying to keep yourself in some kind of role that you assign to yourself that's uh yeah that's kamikaze stuff really yeah um when you did come back from that how were you feeling back playing with wexford then um okay not too bad in 2012 um i was very i was very I was very happy to be back and there was an excitement that provided just like the same excitement that I had when I was a young fella. I had let go of a lot of maybe the associations that I'd had with the game, the identity that I'd had with the game. I let go of those things uh, and I felt delighted just to be back playing. Um, but as the year went on, I, I came across that uh, may, may have been a thing in my head and it may not, I don't know, but I came across a woman in Waterford who was selling um, Kangen water, which is a... Um, an alkalized form of water you buy a machine you hook it up to your tap it, it's an alkalizer it alkalizes the it alkalizes the water and then you put that alkaline water into your body and the vast majority of any problems with health that anybody has uh, is around uh, inflammation of any any part of the body i'm sitting in a lotus position at the moment i can feel my knees are a little bit a, a bit stiff and that's just a that's a, that's an inflammation of my body from excess sugar or from you know late nights or whatever it is um when your body is in when you're when you have an alkaline when you've created an alkalized environment uh, in your body you don't have that that doesn't it's disease can't live in an alkaline environment of any shape or form like cancer all of these there this is all um 
these are these, these all flourish uh, where you've got an acidic environment. Um, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Now, to get that kind of environment from food alone, there's so many of the nicest foods that we eat are acid farming, and there's so few uh, that are alkalizing that you'd be eating broccoli and asparagus that came out of your ears. Um, and it's like the scale and then you're looking and you're like, well, it's that, is it this? Can I have that? And then you find out, oh no, you can't have that. You can have this. And it's just, and then, and then you develop a very um, complex relationship with food and it doesn't, because it ceases to be the kind of enjoyable thing that it was and it becomes more tense and that creates uh, more a more acidic, believe it or not. I mean, again, it makes perfect sense. Of course it does. When your body is stressed, your mind is stressed, that creates uh and an acidic environment as well so that furthers problems that you're going to have in in the flow of your body um so i found this woman in watford who had this kangen machine and i was aware of of that of that philosophy and i was trying to eat my way into alkalinity and it wasn't going fantastically well uh and she had this alkaline machine so i tried it for three months and i need to buy the machine for three grand and in those three months, I just felt great. Um, I was getting out of bed in the morning. I wasn't sluggish. I wasn't tired. After training, even my body was just felt good. I don't know why. I think maybe I thought it was might have been a placebo effect or something, but I didn't buy. Um, I just I don't think I had a huge amount of money at the time anyway, but I was back teaching. I probably should have just tried it. Um, I didn't buy the machine. Um, it did feel that there was a, a kind of a pyramid aspect to how the whole thing was set up and I didn't fully trust it. I just let it go and I was feeling better. I thought, okay, I'm, I'm fine again now. So I let that go. But for those, I came back in February. Um, I probably went down to her in March or April and for the championship that year, I remember I kind of went down and got an extra bit of a supply from her and she was a hurling woman as well and was a lovely woman and she, we had a nice, uh, we had a nice connection together. And so she, gave me an extra little bit and I remember in the in the games in the championship I had my own water bottle and and all that all that stuff is that all that stuff is shit too it's an awful feeling like you know it's like you don't it, people are like oh that's that that's that's Gizzy's water bottle and it's just like how pathetic am I like you know say like, well what am I like you know I can't have gluten what the fuck is wrong with me like the boys are lurrying steaks and spuds and pasta and everything else and you just feel like kind of it feels kind of isolating it feels a little bit shit to be honest um, but it it was good to have the energy back. It's good to be able to play the game a little bit freer. And I think from the my time um, with meditation and yoga and things like that, I had released an awful lot of the very negative thought patterns that were in my head around the game. And so it just became much more enjoyable. And I remember that in Thurlis we played, uh, we played against Cork, he scored a goal. I think the only goal he ever scored in championship, definitely the only goal he ever scored in championship. <laughs> and uh, I remember like my legs, he tried to see the, the it's on uh, YouTube or it's on, there was a clip in maybe the documentary or something I saw it and Joe's just my body halfway up. But I remember running out of scoring a goal and like, all of the pain of the previous four or five years, like all of the fucking struggle, all of that just erupted. But it started in my feet and then it came up as far as my hips and my body kind of was trying to, I was battling with that in, intellectual idea in uh, in GA where you, like, you can't be seen to celebrate and you can't be fucking, you know, you can't be enjoying it too much. Like you don't want to be like a soccer player or whatever. <laughs> and uh, 
but my legs were having a different conversation altogether and I was just jump I was just running trying to run back out of my position but I was jumping up and down just from my my waist down like it was just this really weird really fucking weird experience but uh funny at the, at the time as well because there's so much joy in it you know and after your career with Wexford you moved up um to well I don't know where you're living in Dublin before that but you were living mm. in Dublin then for a while um but you didn't really like it I presume at all I moved up in, I stayed with the panel in 2013 and I went training uh, one night late in, the, or late in the previous year, 2012, I suppose. And uh, Matt O'Hanlon, I remember I was on the tackle bags and Matt Hanlon gave me a shoulder and uh, just knocked me for six and I couldn't get up. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't really just lay on the field for, the boys were all gone in and I was just up the top of the field in Patrick's Park lying down, trying to find my breath, trying to use all of the breathing techniques I'd use, just trying to get trying I felt at the time like not to die like I was just trying to and then I felt after that experience it was like okay I have to it's not working you know or something something still very very wrong here and so um I stayed involved with the panel for three or four months but yeah I wasn't really Liam had a different idea as to how GA teams run as to how I did and I was kind of vocal about it as well at meetings and stuff like I felt we were doing stuff with sports psychologists and and they were very good at what they did but I could just see that there was like a, a silence a, a kind of a struggle or a pain in the room that wasn't coming out like so I stayed involved and then took the job with News Talk uh, on Off the Ball and um, once I took that and started talking about sport on the radio Liam definitely didn't like that and he just like kind of said look at um I'd had I'd said a few words at training one night and uh he kind of came to me after and said look this is probably time you leave and so I did I just continued my life in Dublin and I found working with News Talk even though it was the most ideal job in sport I'd say in many respects because you've got this time to explore sport I wasn't very I didn't feel particularly good at it um I wasn't very good on the internet, like I'm good at researching stuff and checking sources and all that kind of thing. Uh, and I could see the lads were, uh, myself and Colin Parkinson had started together and I could see uh, I could see Woolley was thriving in it and I was struggling in it. And that went on for a while. And I got a job with SOAR, which was the work that I really wanted to be doing as well. Um, I mean, I loved, I loved news talking in many respects because I loved the lads who I worked with. But the job with SOAR, was a bit different because I felt this is an area that I'm very, very, um, that I'm more comfortable in running workshops with young people on how to achieve, how to release maybe some of the stuff that I was hadn't released early enough, um, how to create conditions for them to release that, how to work in groups, move energy in groups and flush out the, the, the shite talk, um, the shite self-talk that gets you nowhere. Uh, and how to move more towards your purpose in life and understand that there is one and that it's valuable and that it's important that you move towards it for your enjoyment uh, of life and that was really rewarding but I could still feel yeah something just wasn't uh, Dublin there was so much happening Dublin was a real hotbed at that time of of change you know um, the crash had happened and there was a little bit more of an alternative scene and um, and that really was a world I'd never seen before or never been part of before I mean I'd been in like nightclubs where GA players go and where women who like GA players go and that was kind of an environment I'm comfortable in. Uh, this was you know, in the places that I was I started to go to at that time there was nobody not only didn't know that you played for Wexford but didn't care and that was fine that suited me down to the ground as well you know 
Um, so that was that was that was a very interesting time. But I found there was so much happening and so many interesting things happening. That I was going to stuff all the time, and I was continuing to, to wear my body down a bit. And I knew after a while of that that I wasn't getting any better. I wasn't healing still. So I I left. Yeah, I just left. You moved down to Kerry then, and as you were saying off air, you're living in Ventry now, and you love it. And is part of that just being away from everything and having the sea and the views and everything and just getting up nearly every morning and like looking out in the view and just taking it all in? It has a value. Uh, it certainly has a value. I mean, I don't think, I don't think that rich people own properties by the sea uh, by accident, like. Um, I think there's something very valuable to the human mind to see the horizon like that level of expanse versus where I was in Dublin where I could see the fella in the in the fucking house across from me 10 <laughs> yards away you know that's that leads your mind kind of inwards you know it's like it's, it's boxed in whereas when you can see the horizon like when you can see vast expanses I think that's I think that that feels good for your mind to be able to give that amount of space to yourself it's not realistic for everybody but this was some, one of the things but it was really it was a it was a, a dropout uh, in many respects for me uh, because as anybody who goes through a period of suffering um, and a period of internal suffering knows the worst part of internal suffering like when it comes to addiction or you know alcoholism or or depressions or whatever is you start uh, trading on your relationships your your most important relationships you start to abuse them uh, in a way. Now, that's a strong word. There are extremes of that. But when you don't feel kind of integral and honest in your primary relationships uh, or with people that you're meeting, you don't feel kind of honest in them, uh, it becomes very uncomfortable. So I just had to go. I had to get out. It wasn't a decision. It wasn't a decision I made. The decision made me. I just kind of went with it. And I ended up down in West Kerry because it was somewhere that I could go to and it was a place I knew. Uh, and I got, I rented a house and just spent about nine months there on my own. Uh, for a huge length of time which was probably detrimental in some respects but the time and the space was probably good physically uh, mentally I don't think it was so good it's not it's not the best idea in the world at times to isolate yourself that much with your thoughts um, so I, I don't regret it because it happened and, and it, it's led me to now so that's fine but in hindsight I would say yeah maybe a little bit too much but there's a great there's a great sense of freedom like in being able to head off out to the edge of the cliffs over where there's nobody within five miles of you and to roar your head off at the sea if that's what you feel like doing or to climb down the cliffs and jump in to the sea if that's what you feel like doing like whatever whatever you want to do you're just kind of you're just doing it in your environment everything is open to you and there's nobody there to say you can't or you can uh, do it you just you just do what you feel you'd work a little bit more on instinct I think that was maybe part of what I wanted to what I needed to develop to allow that maybe inner voice to come out a little bit more, you know. And even if we to just look at Wexford, um, 2019 was a fantastic year for them, but last year as a Wexford supporter, not the ideal year at all, but do you feel now this year, like looking at Wexford, that there's huge pressure on them to deliver with David Fitzgerald? staying on for another year now and not delivering last year do, do you feel this there has to be some sort of silverware in Wexford this year now 
Um, I don't know. I don't know, Paul. I really don't. I don't know what the lie of the land is anywhere at the moment. Um, life has, has, has kind of shifted so so drastically. Um, I, and I don't really look at the game in that way. Like, how does Davy Fitzgerald feel? How do people feel about Davy Fitzgerald? How do people feel about Wexford? I mean, it's grand. Like, it's grand. It's it's a it's a grand line of inquiry for for plenty of for plenty of people, and it's an important level of interaction with the game. Um, the most important in many respects. But. I wonder. I'm. I, I'm looking forward to the championship this year. Not particularly as a Wexford man. Um, not, it's, I'm not bursting to see Wexford play. I want to see if that little bit of joy and little bit of freedom and little bit of gratitude. The fact that we can't guarantee now that we'll get to see games. That games might not be played. Like lads, when, when you're playing hurling, like you know, you think this is forever in some respects, and you definitely think for the next year it's, it's a certainty, you know, unless you're going to get dropped or something. But now we see that actually that's not the case. Now you realise the great privilege that it is to get to go out on the field and play. And once you forget that privilege, a certain type of something else replaces it. But once you remember that that's there, once you remember that it's a privilege, once you remember that you now get to go out and do the thing that you've, you've trained so hard to do. Um, and you're grateful for that opportunity. I think that that's a step forward, a step forward for the game. In some respects, it's a step backwards because we were on this track of what we call societally progress uh, and development and all of those lovely words. But it, I think, similar to the, to the ecological situation in the country, it's, it was only leading us off the edge of a cliff. The GPA um, stats that came back on the survey from players told that story. It said players are not happy. Players are not happy. Our inter-county players are not happy. Now, club players might be thinking, well, who gives a shit whether the club players have or the county players have? Because they get loads of stuff anyway, and they're well looked after. That's not the point, whether they're, whether they're happy in their lives or whatever. That's not the point. The point is, is that the game was becoming too serious and too intense for there to be enjoyment. The notion that in your 20s that you would give up from November uh, to September and then extend it with the club into October, that you would give up not your weekends, not your not your, your time, because you do that because you want to do it, because you play and you love to play, but to give up your agency for that level of time, to give up your agency as a person for that level of time in your 20s, I don't think is a healthy thing um, that a man can say to another man because that's what's happening in the game. There's men saying to other men just because one has been around on the earth for maybe 10 years longer or 20 years longer. He's saying, you can't do this. You can't have that. You can't drink. You can't go here. You can't go there. And that's bullshit because if you can run a hundred flat, if you play soccer in 10 seconds and you can run it the following Saturday in 10 seconds, it's not really their business what you're doing in between, even though the professional athletes and all sports tend to function like that. But the GA doesn't function like that. The GA reaches into players' lives, was reaching into players' lives far too much. And the report back from those people, and the club game is just following that, by the way, the report back from the people who are experiencing it, the person wearing the shoe, not the shoemaker, the person wearing the shoe, what they were saying is this is uncomfortable. It's untenable. And it's not enjoyable. Of course, there are highs. Of course, there are great moments in it. Of course, there's camaraderie. Of course, there's loads of positive things in it. 
but it's not on the whole as enjoyable as it could and definitely should be. So I think we're maybe taking a step forwards, a new type of development, a step forwards or a step sideways by going backwards a little bit uh, in time to say like maybe before we got a little bit too involved with ourselves um, as athletes and as players, maybe that wasn't going quite the direction it should have been going. Um, how do you tell that to any team or any intercounty player who's looking to, or any club player even, who's looking to get to the top of their game and who wants to win and who has to win or whatever? I don't know about that, but I'm looking forward to the championship to see is there a little bit more of a, is there a little bit more reality in it? Uh, is it stepped outside the bubble of itself a little bit? Um, because I think that's always needed. And that's what I'd be hoping to see. And if Wexford show that and they don't win, I'd be probably happy enough with that. And if they don't show it and they do win, it'll be great. I mean, it'll still be great to, to celebrate and to do all those things, but I'd much prefer to see the health of the game on the whole move forward than I would just Wexford to move forward, you know? Yeah, very good point you make there, even about the controlling of inter-county managers but as you're saying there it's it's a very hard situation to kind of push back but mm, for sure to finish up I suppose um, just a few quick fire questions that um, came in for you um, who would you say during your career has been the best player you've played with mm. My favourite player to play with was definitely Owen Quigley, hands down. Uh, I mean, I didn't for Wexford. I didn't get to play with Kieran. He would have been, he, he was my favourite player to ever play with, best and favourite to ever play with. Uh, but I thought I th I really thought that um, yeah that that early team that early team. But I don't know how realistic it was at the time. But they just had something like the likes of Dar Ryan. Dar Ryan was probably was definitely there. Damien Fitzhenry, like, holy God, the stuff that he used to do. Yeah, hard to know. My favourite, the, the fellow who I who enjoyed, who, who made my career uh, as enjoyable as it was, was definitely on Quigley, both on and off the field. Um, yeah. And your uh, toughest opponent? Um, probably Owen as well. Okay, and then finally, um, the best manager that you worked under. My father. My father was the best manager I ever worked under, un unquestionably. Yeah. Well, Jim, in inter-county inter setting, because he never managed us for Wexford. Uh, it wouldn't have been a manager. It was actually a trainer. Uh, Padraig Murphy was Padraig Murphy was the best. Well, Jeremy Ling, um, thanks a million for your time um, for coming on the Backdoor GA podcast. Welcome, Paul.